All right. So Sarah, before we recorded today, I was listening to this YouTube video or watching it. And do you remember this? The one that goes, I'm just a bill. I'm only a bill sitting here on Capitol Hill. Do you remember that song from Schoolhouse Rock when we were growing up? No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> you look weird saying this stuff. But I did listen to, do you remember watching or listening to the Capitol Steps? They are a group that has like satire. Like back when there were like tape decks in cars, we would listen to the Capitol Steps. Okay. So probably that has nothing to do with anything. No, but okay. So if unlike for Sarah, right, what I said earlier jogs your memory, then this might be the episode for you. And if you're too young to remember that song or tape decks and cars, right, this episode is also for you. And you know what, even if you hate you heard me say that, and you hate that song, this episode is still for you. Why might you be asking because this episode is about civics. And in other words, that we're going to talk about all the ways in which our government functions. And hang on, because if you feel like instantly skipping to your next podcast episode from some other show, stop. Listen, because we are right now at a really critical time in our country's history, right? With all of what's been in the news through the disastrous Speaker of the House elections in the House of Representatives. Yeah, like, well, and all the discussions we've had and we'll have about Supreme Court decisions. Yes, that is all squarely in your court. <laughs> See what I did there? Oh, my gosh. Miss lawyer. <laughs> you know, and we have to talk about where we are right now in 2023 is basically setting the stage for the crucial presidential election of 2024. So all of this is to say this is a topic that we probably all should know a lot more about. Yeah, because right now, I don't think we do. Truth. Correct. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, where we model and normalize conversations about race and racism as we work to help white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. We are your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and Misasha. All right. So you just said before the intro that we don't know a lot about civics. And I know that was brought to my attention when my Japanese immigrant mom took the citizenship test to become an American. And as she was studying, she's just spouting stuff off. And I'm like, oh, wait a second. I forgot. That's how this works. So selfishly, I really wanted us to review Civics 101 and also cover civics more generally this year due to my own lack of knowledge around it. And I feel like I can know and do more than I do right now. So tell me. Am I alone in feeling this way? Not at all. And not by a long shot, I think. Because according to the Annenberg Public Policy Center of the University of Pennsylvania, civic knowledge on a national scale is really low. With a bare majority of Americans, and so we're talking 56%, able to identify the three branches of government and nearly one in 10 or 20% unable to identify any of the three. Interesting. And I just want to asterisk, we will be going through the answers to what the branches of government are later. So stay tuned. Yeah. And I think it's important to point out that at the same time as we have this real lack of civic knowledge nationally, the confidence in our democratic institutions has really dropped. And that's according to the American Bar Association as of early 2022. So at that time, only 5%, 13%, and 16% of Americans have a great deal of confidence in Congress, the Supreme Court, and the presidency, respectively. I mean, those were low numbers, right? And the fact that we don't know much about civics and, you know, generally don't trust in our democratic institutions, this really fuels that political divide, which is really now at its highest levels in the modern era. 
And I think it's also, we were just talking about adults, right? But it's not just adults who don't feel able to engage with civics because we're also slowly marginalizing civic education in our children's, and I'm talking about K to 12 schools. Civic education really starts with building the knowledge to understand our systems and also should teach the skills and the dispositions to engage in the public square, the public arena, and the motivation to do so, right? So it's not just the institutions, it's like the why behind it. However, according to the Council of Chief State School Officers, 44% of school districts have reduced the time spent on social studies since the advent of No Child Left Behind. And this problem is particularly bad in the elementary grades, where only 10% of class time is devoted to social studies compared to 53% for English and 25% for math. Wow, that is seriously a huge drop and difference. Right? And this isn't new, right? This sort of pushing aside of social studies and civics is directly linked to decade-long education policies at the state, both the state and federal levels, which mandates testing of basic literacy and like sort of English language arts and math through funding incentives, right? So in other words, it's all about the money or in this case, the lack thereof. And specifically, and as a direct consequence of education policy in this country, civic education has been chronically underfunded at both the federal and state levels. So currently, the federal government invests a mere five cents per K-12 student on civics, compared to $54 per student for science, technology, engineering, and math, or what is commonly called STEM. Holy cow! Right? And the evidence also makes clear that decades of decline in both the quality and the quantity of civic education has contributed significantly to the discord, dysfunction, and widespread disengagement that's really problematic today in America. Because, I mean, this is decades long, right? This affected our civics learning, most likely, not just our kids. Well, and it really makes me think about how when we vote on policies, when we vote on where money goes, when we make these changes, we sometimes are so focused on the quick fix and the quick impact that we neglect this longer term, decades long impact because we can draw a line back to, you know, from where we are today, back to when the funding changes were happening. And now look at where we are. Yeah. You know, I love a good through line. Right. And I think this is especially your point is especially spot on because we know this thing to be true. For example, applied early on and comprehensively for every student in the United States, civic education is one key solution to really this lack of engagement in our constitutional democracy. And this is a nonpartisan stance, right? This is widely agreed on by Democrats and Republicans alike. In 2020, pollster Frank Lutz surveyed more than 1,000 Americans and asked what they felt could heal the country's divides, which in 2020, we know were big. Among seven solutions, including less money in politics and ranked choice voting, civic education was the number one choice by a majority across political leanings. And this backs up what academic reports have shown for decades, because according to civicsnow.org, civic education, when done well, really creates young people who are more likely to vote, more likely to work on community issues, more likely to become socially responsible, and more likely to feel confident speaking publicly and interacting with elected officials. And given all of that, it's shocking that we're still not teaching it in our schools. Because according to that American Bar Association unofficial analysis, 38 states and the District of Columbia require a high school civics course, but only seven of them require it for a full year. Eight other states require civics instructions, but not in the context of a standalone course. And seven states 
have no high school civics requirement. So you may not even take civics, you know, in high school. Turning to middle school, that situation is even worse because only five states require a standalone civics course. And Massachusetts is the sole state requiring a full year of instruction. 25 additional states and the District of Columbia require civics instruction, but 20 states do not. And side note, what state are you living in? Because if you heard that and you're like, whoa, I check to see what your middle school and high school civics education looks like in your state. And, you know, this is all to say, this is a really long windup, I know. But it's important to tell you two things. One, it may not be your fault that you didn't learn civics in school because, and I don't think I'm speaking just for me, I definitely did not retain the knowledge that I knew. And hey, I may not have even gotten the full knowledge that I should have gotten. But two, it is your fault if you don't learn about them now, which is why I think, Sarah, I love that you drove us to create this whole civics platform that we have now. So with that all said, let's get down to specifics. Okay, I'm in. Yay! All right, let's get started. What according to the U.S. Citizenship Test, is the governing document of American democracy. Okay, so that refers to the Constitution, and which, as we've noted, has been misquoted and mistakenly relied on by many people in the wrong context. And so I still find this odd that we're letting this be the controlling document of the land. But anyway, I digress. And a note for those of you who are like, great, but what is American democracy? What does it mean? Encyclopedia Britannica defines democracy as this. Democracy is a system of government in which laws, policies, leadership, and major undertakings of a state or other sort of area, right, are directly or indirectly decided by the people, which is a group historically constituted by only a minority of the population, for example, all free adult males in ancient Athens, or all sufficiently, all men who own, adult men who own property in 19th century Britain but generally understood since the mid 20th century to include all or nearly all adult citizens. And I particularly love this definition because it also highlights how our own democracy has changed in America. I love that. So you talked about the role or you talked about the Constitution, but what is the role of the Constitution? Okay, great question. It's got three roles, right? It sets up the government, it defines the government, and it protects the basic rights of Americans. Mm, Okay. So why are the first words of the Constitution important? Okay. So first of all, the first words that you're referring to, I think, are we the people. And those three words set up the right of the American people to self-govern. And here, please note that we the people is not the start or part of the Declaration of Independence, as several prominent lawmakers have tried to mistakenly claim over the years. Yeah. Okay. So then that makes sense. Because when we say self-govern, That refers back to the definition of democracy that you gave us earlier, right? Yes. And because we have this document, the Constitution, we are considered a democratic or constitutional republic. And the difference between those two things, right, democracy and a democratic republic is, according to Wikipedia, a constitutional democratic republic is a state in which supreme power is held by the people and their elected representatives and which has an elected or nominated president rather than a monarch. Whereas a true democracy is a system of government by the whole population or all the eligible members of a state, typically through elected representatives. I'm thinking about that. And so basically the power gets we give our power to a slate of people who then represent us versus each of us holding the power to directly go. 
which would be a democracy. And we have a president, right? We have someone who's like at the head of all of that, who has powers through the constitution as well. Whereas a true democracy is right. It's really flat, right? You've got elected eligible members, right? And they've got some elected representatives, but a constitutional republic or a democratic republic is a little more structured. That's like how I like to think about it. That's awesome. Thank you. The other thing I think people talk a lot about is the Bill of Rights. So what is meant by the Bill of Rights? Right. And those go hand in hand with the Constitution because those are the first 10 amendments to the Constitution. How many total amendments are there? There are 27. Okay. So 27 amendments, which means, is this the time to point out that the Constitution was not a perfect document set in stone, but rather one that with enough political will and collaboration can be changed? Yes, great question. And it has been changed, obviously, at least 27 times, right, to include rights or concepts that were left out of the original document. And before we go on, I just want to mention a couple of additional notes about the Constitution, especially because we've devoted a lot of time in this our episodes, right, to talking about the right to vote. So specifically, the Constitution and amendments say the following in four different places in the Constitution. One, citizens 18 and older can vote. Two, you don't have to pay a poll tax to vote. Three, any citizen, this is in reference to both men and women, can vote. And four, prior to that, a male citizen of any race can vote. And these are rights that only belong to United States citizens. Another right that's specifically laid out in the Constitution that only belongs to U.S. citizens is the ability to run for federal office. And one responsibility that's also in the Constitution only for U.S. citizens is the ability to serve on a jury. Okay, I love that. And then that's to stand in contrast with people who are green card holders, are legal immigrants, but not U.S. citizens. And so I appreciate that differentiation that is made for adult citizens in particular. But I think that gives us a really basic primer on what we talk about very broadly when we talk about the Constitution. Is everyone still with us listening out there? Because I want to move on to the government itself, because I think where I get confused is how do we interact with the government and with this constitution. So what are the branches of American government and how do they stay, right? We always talk about checks and balances. How do they stay balanced? Right. So there are three branches to the U.S. government, the legislative, the executive, and the judiciary or the judicial branch. And we say that there is a system of checks and balances between these three branches in terms of what enumerated or what powers given to them they each hold so that ideally no one branch has a disproportionate amount of power when compared to the other two. Okay. So that makes sense in theory. Let's take each branch separately. Who is in charge of the executive branch and what do they do? Okay. So the executive branch of our government is in charge of making sure that the laws of the United States are obeyed or being followed. So the president of the United States is the head of this branch. And in this role, the president gets help from the vice president, department heads, which are called cabinet members, and heads of independent agencies. So here are some of the things that these people do in the executive branch. First, the president leads the country and is also the commander in chief of the military. The vice president becomes the president if the president can no longer do the job and is also the president of the Senate. Department heads advise the president on issues and help carry out decisions made by the government. And independent agencies also help carry out decisions made by the government or provide special services. Okay. I want to come back to that 
in a second because I want to go into like the department heads. But let's go back to this idea. You said the uh, say that both the president and the vice president can't do the job because you said the VP takes the president's job if they can't. So who's up next? Who's the third person in power? Right. I feel like it's designated survivor time. But anyway, okay. right. So it's the president, then the vice president, then the speaker of the house. And that is why this most recent speaker election was important, but not really. So more on that later. Oh, yeah. We'll have to put a pin in that one because that could be totally derailing this conversation. (laughs) What are some of the things that the president can do? Okay, so the president can sign bills into law and the president can veto bills, both of which are really important. And the balance of one versus the other often changes depending on what party controls Congress, because if the president and, you know, the Congress are sort of controlled by the same political party, more often than not, you're probably signing bills into law after the president may flip if that is not the same. Okay. So then I want to come back to what we skipped over before the department heads, right? Like the cabinet, who is in it? Okay. So if you're taking the U.S. citizenship test, like you were talking about your mom taking, you only need to name two of these positions. But there are a bunch of people who make up the cabinet and they all hold the title of secretary. Ah, secretary of whatever. Right. So the various divisions of which you can be a secretary are agriculture, commerce, defense, education, energy, health and human services, homeland security, which I think we hear a lot about, housing and urban development, sometimes called HUD for short, interior, labor, state, transportation, treasury, and veterans affairs. So the vice president and the attorney general are also part of the cabinet. And remember, everyone's job in the cabinet is to advise the president. Okay. As they work to make sure that the laws of the land are obeyed. Okay. So speaking of laws, let's talk about the legislative branch. Right. So the legislative branch is in charge of making those laws. And it is made up of the Congress and several government agencies. So let's take Congress first. Congress has two parts, the House of Representatives and the Senate. So members of the House and the Senate are voted into office by American citizens in each state. There are currently 100 senators because each state has two senators. And there are 435 representatives because each state has a different number of representatives depending on population, with the most populated states having the most representatives. There are also five delegates and one resident commissioner. It's notable that the delegates who are from D.C. and the four American territories, which are American Samoa, Guam, the Northern Mariana Islands, and the U.S. Virgin Islands, and the resident commissioner who is from Puerto Rico, have no voting rights. That's very important. Can I ask a question? Yeah. If they have no voting rights, what do they do there? They just listen and submit their thoughts? Yeah, they're not able to be voting members. Like they're not counted in, you know, the whole Speaker of the House fiasco, right? They're not able to vote. Yeah. So they have sort of representation without voting abilities, which has been historically a big issue as well for obvious reasons, right? So remember I said that there was Congress and several government agencies. So there are a couple examples of those government agencies are the government publishing office and the Library of Congress, right? And so these agencies in this group support the Congress. Okay, that makes sense. I also want to make it clear because we talked about the senators and representatives. How long does each senator serve for? Okay, great question. So each senator serves for six years, typically, unless you're part of a special election to fill a seat that's been vacated by death or other reasons. Because remember, Senator Warnock, that was a special election that happened. 
in 2021. Yeah. Okay. But I think it's important. Six years, they are longer than the presidency. So that's super important to remember that they're going to be around for a while and senators are important. So how do you find out who your senators are? Okay, so the Senate actually has a website like everyone now, and you can go on there, search by state and find your senators there. So hopefully we'll drop these in the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. And then that's senators. But what about representatives? How long are their terms? Two years. So, you know, shorter, right, than both the president and senators. And I bet you're going to ask, so you can find your representatives by going to the House of Representatives website. Shocker, they've got a website too. Put in your zip code and you can find your representative that way. I think this is all to say it's really easy. So we should all know who our representatives and senators are at all times. Okay, just let's put that expectation on ourselves. But let's talk a little bit about laws because A, you started with that song and B, you're a lawyer. And C, I'm still not clear on how a bill becomes a law. So can you just talk us through that? Because it is, it's when I think about the fiasco that just happened recently, it is shocking to me that these are the people who are creating our laws. So- I would like to understand how it actually works. And I would like to issue a disclaimer. As a lawyer, I am more involved with the judiciary than the legislative branch. But so I had to like look all this up too, to be clear. Okay. Because like I said at the start, I don't remember half of my civics education. And my third grader is learning this right now. So it's great because I used some of his like third grade material. So when we're talking about civics 101, this is literally civics 101, to be clear. But I have a question. What you just said, you said as a lawyer, you're in the judiciary to help and like judge the law. How do people know? Maybe this will come up, but like, how do people writing the laws know whether they're friggin' legal or not? Like, I mean, I'm just kind of like, wait, how come lawyers shouldn't lawyers be involved in this part of the process too? Well, you do have a lot of Congress people who are lawyers, right? So it does help. I mean, I think it helps to understand, right? Because yeah, if you're going to do something that's super illegal, but hopefully that's why you have a lot of advisors and there's like a lot of checks in this process, right? Before a bill becomes a law or even something becomes a bill. So let's talk about the process because the very first step is to, not shockingly, but still sometimes surprising, is to come up with the idea for a bill, right? And so that can come from a representative or it can come from any of us, which is the greatest part about our democratic republic, right? Because we can have that idea of something that we feel like should become a law and we can call our representative about it. So if our representative likes that, they can research it and start writing it up. Okay. So the next step is you have the idea, then you write the bill. Okay. So the bill has to come out on, you know, something. And then once it's written, it needs a sponsor. And that can be one or a number of additional representatives. So in order to get sponsors, the bill writing representative needs to talk to other representatives to get support for the bill. I suddenly had a vision of Legally Blonde and Reese Witherspoon's character going to get support for the bill. Okay. (laughs) Right? Have you not watched this? Oh my gosh, I have teenage daughters watch this. Okay. I have watched it, but I have not watched it in 20 years. So I will say that is another resource for your... Your civics. Okay. So third grade and legally blonde. Okay. (laughs) So once there is a sponsor, the bill can be introduced in the house and a bill can only be introduced. I'm laughing because it's like so archaic in our world right now. If it's put in the hopper, which is a special box on the side of the clerk's desk, 
you know, which I think if any of us watch C-SPAN, you know, at the start of this year with the speaker, you know, the whole vote for the speaker, I think we found out that a lot of, you know, legislative procedures are fairly archaic. But anyway, I digress. And I remember the hopper being in the headlines on January 6th because there was some staffer who had the presence of mind to grab it Mm -hmm. before people came into the room. Yeah. So the hopper is alive and kicking in 2023. Okay. So once the bill's in the hopper, it's assigned a number that starts with HR, which is House of Representatives, blah, blah, blah. The bill is then read out loud. And then the speaker sends it to one of the standing committees of the House. So when the bill reaches that committee, right, the committee members who are groups of representatives who are experts on topics such as like agriculture, education, or international relations, They then take the bill, they review it, they research it, and they revise it before they in committee vote on whether or not to send the bill back to the House floor. So if the committee members would like more information before deciding if the bill should be sent to the House floor, the bill is sent to a subcommittee. And when the bill is in subcommittee, the bill is closely examined and they're getting more expert opinions about it before it is sent back to the committee for approval. So it could go from the committee to the House floor. It could go from the committee to a subcommittee back to the committee. I imagine you could do this a number of times and then back to the House. Okay. so when the committee has approved a bill, it's sent to the House or reported to the House floor. Once reported, a bill is ready to be debated by the House, the full House. When a bill is debated, representatives discuss the bill and explain why they agree or disagree with it. And then a reading clerk reads the bill section by section and the representatives recommend changes. And when all changes have been made, the bill is ready to be voted on. This could be a very long process, I think, as you're hopefully as I'm talking about this, like why things are so slow can be. It totally was (laughs) what I was thinking. I'm like, they read it out loud and wow. I mean, hey, but it's thorough, right? Right. It's very thorough. And I think this might answer some of your questions about like if you're having some highly illegal thing, right? You're in the full house, right? And everyone's like, you know what? That sounds really illegal. So once the bill is ready for a vote, there are three methods for voting on a bill in the house, right? Viva voce, which is voice vote. So the speaker of the house asks the representatives who support the bill to say I and those who oppose it say no. Okay, so that's the first way. Or the second way is called division. The Speaker of the House asks those representatives who support the bill to be stand up and be counted, and then those who oppose the bill to stand up and be counted. Or the third way is a recorded vote. Representatives record their vote using the electronic voting system. I think we've seen some of this before. Representatives can vote yes, no, or present, and they vote present if they don't want to vote on the bill. If a majority of the representatives say or select yes, the bill passes in the House. So then the bill is certified by the clerk of the House and delivered to the Senate. Okay, so let's say the bill got through the House. When the bill reaches the Senate, it goes through many of the same steps it went through in the House. It's discussed in a Senate committee and then reported to the Senate floor to be voted on. And senators vote by voice. Okay, so those who support the bill say yay and those who oppose it say nay. And so if a majority of the senators say, yay, the bill passes in the Senate and is ready to go to the president. Again, this seems like a very long process. Yeah. Is it also kind of ridiculous that I'm like, oh, so they say yay and nay. And in the House, they say I and no. I mean, it's just like it's so silly. But that's what jumps out at me right now. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, there is a lot of uh, procedure here, to say the least. OK. OK. Sorry to interrupt. No, please. Okay, so when a bill reaches the president, he or she has three choices, right? 
Boom, yeah, she, 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 yeah, throw it in there. I know. So the president can sign and pass the bill, and in which case the bill becomes law. The president can refuse to sign or veto the bill, and then the bill is sent back all the way to the House, along with the president's reasons for the veto. If the House and the Senate still believe the bill should become a law, they can hold another vote on the bill. And if two-thirds of the representatives and senators support the bill, the president's veto is overridden and the bill becomes a law. Okay, so the president can sign and pass the bill, can veto the bill, or the president can do nothing, which is called a pocket veto. And if Congress is in session at the time, the bill automatically becomes a law after 10 days. I love that you can eat. The president can basically do nothing. Like, yo, this law passed. Like, now we've got a law. Sorry, missed it. New law. <laughs> right? If Congress is not in session, the bill does not become a law. Also interesting. That is just the timing around how this goes. Okay. So if a bill has passed in both the House and the Senate and has been approved by the president, or if a presidential veto has been overridden, the bill becomes a law and is enforced by the government. I mean, even just thinking about how long it took to explain it, I totally see now why bills can take such a long time to go from this idea into the law or potentially being vetoed. I don't want to neglect getting into that third branch of government, your branch, Miss Lawyer, the judiciary. (laughs) Kind of, loosely, yes. Okay, so the judicial branch is in charge of deciding the meaning of laws, how to apply them to real situations, and whether a law breaks the rules of the Constitution. Because remember, again, the Constitution is that highest law of our land. So the U.S. Supreme Court, which is the highest court in the United States, is part of this judicial branch and is kind of the top of this judicial branch. And the Supreme Court is made up of nine judges called justices who are nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate. The head justice is called the chief justice. That is John Roberts, right, currently. The justices hear cases that have made their way up through the court system. And the main task of the Supreme Court is to decide cases that may differ from the Constitution. So once the Supreme Court makes a decision in a case, it can only be changed by a later Supreme Court decision or by changing or amending the Constitution. That's where those amendments come in, right? And don't worry, we are going to do some very specific episodes on SCOTUS this year, right? So we'll be breaking down the judiciary and its role much more closely in those episodes as well. That's awesome. I think those will be really interesting conversations. And to confirm, I only realized this recently. So justices are only referring to those on the Supreme Court. No other judges in the United States are called justices. Is it just? Correct. Okay. Otherwise, they're called judges. Noted. Judges for the most part. Yes. And they, if you're on the Supreme Court, you're never called a judge. Then you are only a justice. Okay. All right. Cool. Thanks. Can we go back to the Speaker of the House for a second? I mean, I know we said we'd come back to this conversation, but I think we all realize that, you know, C-SPAN can be a legitimate source of sad, unfortunate entertainment for many, many millions of us. So what happened? What on earth happened? Right. Great question, which I think many of us are still like, what? Okay. So the current controversy over the Speaker of the House of Representatives, and if you're listening to this episode, when we release it, we're talking about the Speaker McCarthy's vote to get him into that role. So that whole controversy highlighted, you know, the Speaker of the House's role as one of the most important elected officials in Washington. 
for reasons among others, that Speaker McCarthy is now third in succession to the presidency. Although the Constitution really doesn't say much about the position and how the House should select the Speaker. Now, the Speaker is usually selected during party meetings before a new Congress meets, like we saw a little bit ago, and the House confirms the selection by individual voice votes. The Clerk of the House presides over the voting process. However, before 1839, secret ballots were used in voting. And until this year, there hasn't been a speaker election contested on the House floor since 1923. I mean, that's like 100 years, literally, right? So (laughs) this year we went a full 15 rounds of being contested. So what does the speaker, I mean, obviously he's the third in charge after the president and the vice president, but what is the other responsibilities of the speaker's role? and, And why did McCarthy decide that he needed to do whatever it took to get this position? Yeah, great question. Because the Speaker of the House, even though the Constitution is kind of silent on the Speaker, they actually serve in several major constitutional roles. So the Speaker is majority political party leader in the House, which on its own is one of the most powerful jobs in government, right? In addition, the Speaker controls the order of all institutional business on the House floor, which is important. And the Speaker also votes on businesses needed as a representative from a district, and he is from California. So in these positions, the Speaker plays a key role as negotiator between the House and President and with the Senate, and as the point person for the House's fundamental role in originating and passing legislation, like we talked about just now, and controlling, you know, really the power of the purse to tax and spend taxpayer money. Mm, which will come up with these conversations. By this point, by the time this is released, the debt ceiling conversation will be done. But that sort of stuff is obviously very important as well. And it's interesting that they get to control the order of things. So say there's a proposal to change the number of sitting justices on the Supreme Court. He could just say, no, 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 I don't want to talk about this and really just say that there's never time to address certain bills that potentially could come up. Okay. So- That's interesting about their role, but we saw a lot of news headlines about McCarthy making a deal with the holdouts who were not voting for him just to get enough votes to become the speaker. So what did he promise and how many votes do you need anyway to become speaker? Okay, so so McCarthy's promises to these holdouts basically fell into three buckets, as we saw when the rules package was released after that whole vote fiasco happened, right? So first, his first bucket of promises, right, was that basically what he agreed to was any one member can force a motion to vacate the speaker's chair and overthrow McCarthy, right? Typically, there are a lot more people that are required to create this motion. So that is problematic. The second bucket of promises makes it harder for the House to raise spending, taxes, and the debt limit, which, Sarah, you just referred to big problem if we can't do that because of how it's been structured, largely by the Republicans, actually. Okay. And the third bucket of promises included conservative representation across the House. And conservative representation, I'll air quote that, because it really refers to adding members of the House Freedom Caucus, which we'll get deeper into in another episode, to key committees, like three seats on the powerful Rules Committee, which controls the bills that make it to the House floor. So you could see how this could potentially go. Anyway, second part of your question. To be the next speaker, a person needs a majority of the votes from House members who are present and voting. While the magic number is 218 votes out of the 435 member House, and I think we all were waiting for that number a number of times, right? A person could become speaker with fewer votes as several members do not attend the vote, or as we found out, simply say present, right? 
That happened in 2021 when Nancy Pelosi won with just 216 votes after three members voted president. And it happened again just recently with McCarthy, who won with 216 as well. Interesting that in the end they won with the same amount. And Mm -hmm. Very differently, though. Yeah, totally. So thank you for walking us through that. That's been super helpful in terms of understanding the basics of our federal government. And I know on other episodes, we've talked about powers that the federal government has and the powers that states have, which I think is super important for us to understand that it's not just federal level stuff that we should be worried about. So can you talk a little bit more about what those are? Yeah. So according to our Constitution, there are certain powers that the federal government and only the federal government hold like being able to print money, to declare war, to create an army, and to make treaties. Okay, there are also powers enumerated or given to the states specifically, which include providing schooling and education, which explains why we have such disparate educational standards per state, providing police protection and providing safety through a fire department, giving out driver's license, and approving zoning and land use. And remember, we've also got that catch-all in the form of the 10th Amendment, right, which specifically states the power is not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively, or to the people. So it's basically like, hey, if the Constitution doesn't say this is a federal right, and the Constitution doesn't specifically say this isn't a state's rights thing, then you know what, we'll just see what happens. And so in order to make major change, like federalizing control of the school system or standardizing a federal driver's license ID thing, that would actually have to go back to the Constitution to be amended in order to take it back to the federal level and away from the states. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's a big freaking deal. Okay, got it. Yeah, that's a lot. All right. And there's some more stuff to let me ask you this. How can ordinary citizens like you and me interact with our federal government? Like, let's say we do or we really don't like something. How can we address this? Okay, so that's a great question. And it's actually one of the questions from the U.S. citizenship test, too, which I think is really important, right? That, yeah, you learn this when you're becoming a U.S. citizen. And I think a lot of people who are born into citizenship do not know this, right? So the question that is on the test is how can citizens participate in their democracy? And here's what they listed. Vote, which I would say, yes, this is absolutely the most important one and the one that should be listed first. Also, join a political party, help with a campaign, join a civic group, join a community group, give an elected official your opinion on an issue, call your senators and representatives, publicly support or oppose an issue or policy, run for office, and write to a newspaper. So Sarah, the ones I've read, and I just read a list pretty fast, what resonates with you and what would you add to that list? I have a bunch of thoughts, actually, and also questions. Voting, for sure. I mean, I agree with you. It's huge. I grew up with my dad saying it's my responsibility to vote in every single election I'm eligible to vote in from like local all the way up to federal. And he was so clear. Like, I remember the room in our house where he was continues to say this stuff. But it was like, if I don't make the choice to engage, he said, I have no right to complain about the state of our country. So that I've taken to heart from my dad. Thoughts on joining a political party? Sure. But I also think it's important to remember that you don't have to, nor should you always vote straight down party lines, because I really feel like it's important to keep thinking candidate by candidate and issue by issue, and that we can remember there's also always the option to register as an independent if that's where you feel most aligned. 
also, when you said when you think about getting involved yourself, I feel like there's other organizations like city council or school board or, you know, doing the role of teaching folks, whether it's officially or unofficially about our government and history and participating in community service projects. I feel like those are really good ways to get involved in taking care of one another. I think you mentioned calling and like or giving your state elected officials your opinion. Speaking from experience, I think that can be really freaking scary the first time you do it. I remember making a call to our senator's office and having like a total shaky voice, like the assistant. <laughs> is it like a, a clerk answered or someone answered, right? I mean, definitely a staffer, right? So, yeah. A staffer. That's okay. Answered. And I had to speak my piece and I to feel like I did something and I was like stumbling and bumbling. But I do notice it gets easier the more times you do it. So don't hesitate to call or email because whatever you think of them, I feel like it's so important to remember that these people represent you like they are your representatives so like make sure that you do what you can the other thing along those lines i think is very helpful for me i'm on the email list of those who are in power in the state so i can get their like mass emails or this is what happened this week and get updated on what's going on and then the last bucket i think i'd say is i'm not there yet but i'm increasingly thinking about ways to support the process for other folks right whether it's volunteering to monitor polls i know you do election protection work and like you can also support people in other states. There's also locally, there's options like giving rides to folks who need to get to polling places, wearing shirts and necklaces and all the things to remind people to vote and be engaged. You know, at the end of the day, from what I understand, democracy, I guess a democratic republic, it really depends on citizens' participation. So without it, we will not make it. Like we need that in order for our country to function. And so I want to share a quote that I read, which I loved. It was this. Quote, a morally and civically responsible individual recognizes himself or herself as a member of the larger social fabric and therefore considers social problems to be at least partly his or her own. Such an individual is willing to see the moral and civic dimensions of issues to make and justify informed moral and civic judgments and to take action when appropriate. So that one resonates with me. I feel like especially because it decenters us, it says specifically, even consider all the social problems out there part of our own thing. So even if you have a roof over your head, the unhoused, like people who are challenged with housing, that is our problem. Like there's ways that we have to look out for one another. And I like that quote for that reason. No, oh, I love it. And I love it because I think this brings it back full circle. But before I do that, I want to asterisk one thing that you asked me. Remember, you asked me about the justice and judge issue. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I was slightly incorrect. You will call. So Justices of the Supreme Court, right, are called justices because that is the highest court in the federal system, right? Trial and appellate level are called judges. Same, though, for the states, because that's what I was trying to remember. For the highest court in the state, the Supreme Court of the state of California, let's say the California Supreme Court, they will also be called justices. Ah, okay. So that's a distinction. Trial and appellate, judges. You, got it to, you get to the highest court, justice. Noted. Thank you. Appreciate Hopefully. it. Hopefully. Of course. All right. So like I mentioned, I wanted to bring this back full circle where we started. And Sarah, that quote is a great way to do it because this, you know, sort of emphasizes the concept of why civics is so important and what is currently being done about it. You know, and some good news, right? The good news is, and we're about to start a new Congress, so we'll see how this goes, right? There has been progress. And in the spring 2021 legislative sessions, Civics Now tracked 88 bills in 34 states affecting K-12 civic education. And the bulk of these bills were designed to strengthen K-12 civic education. Many made it across the finish line with bipartisan support, which is really great. 
And among the, like, I'll just read out some highlights. Oregon and Rhode Island became the 37th and 38th states, respectively, to require at least one semester of civics for high school graduation. Both Indiana and New Jersey passed a requirement for a new middle school civics course. Going even further, Indiana joined Colorado and Nevada in strengthening state civic standards or requirements. Indiana's law creates a permanent state commission of civic education, and Georgia is also seeking to do the same with their state department of education. Utah adopted an experiential civics pilot program for the 2021 to 2022 school year. I love this one because a civics practicum mandate with Republican co-sponsors passed unanimously in Florida, despite Governor DeSantis's ultimate veto. So there is still movement, even in states where you might feel like that would not otherwise be happening. Okay, a little bit, also some really good things broadly, because a dozen other states have pursued policies which are really attempting to expand teaching on race, racism, and the contribution of racial and ethnic groups to U.S. history. And for example, California is among the first states to mandate a statewide ethnic studies curriculum for public school students. Okay, so that was the good news. That's not to say it was all good. <laughs> dun, <laughs> I don't dun, think I was dun. just going to go with just the good news, right? Because let's not forget, at the same time, there have been widespread efforts to limit the teaching of so-called, quote, divisive concepts. And I'm really heavily air quoting this. Such bills, executive orders, and administrative actions often identified as anti-critical race theory, anti-CRT for short, have been introduced in at least 28 states and have become law in 12 of those. And if you're looking for a primer on what is critical race theory, we have an episode for you on that too from 2022. So go back and look for that. Some of these anti-CRT efforts, though, directly impact civic education. For example, the Texas legislature banned teaching elements of CRT in the classroom, but along with this included legislative language that also limited current events, discussions, and community service projects. Oh, which makes me sad because don't you remember like the who, what, when, where, why, cut out a newspaper article and discuss something that's happening currently. Like that was what we did in sixth grade or something. I remember these. Yeah, but once you start taking topics off, you can't do that either. And then what are we teaching our students? That's like a separate, full separate episode, right? The bottom line here is that we've still got a divide. And as we touched on earlier, education is one of those things that's enumerated to the states, but not totally. It should be noted that strengthening civic education is not just you know, sort of within state responsibility. Because as it has with STEM, the federal government has an affirmative role to play here in prioritizing and resourcing K-12 civic education through grants to the states for teacher training, curriculum development, and student programming, accounting for the unique context of states and districts, as we know. Congress really should also authorize an expansion and more frequent administration of the National Assessment of Educational Progress, which is shortened to NAEP, in civics and U.S. history, because the latter will really allow us to see on a state level results and measurements of student performance at key benchmarks, which are typically fourth, eighth, and twelfth grades. Okay, so we're going to end with some better news, right? There have already been two bills that were introduced in the 117th Congress that could help with this, and that's several Congresses back. But still, there's the Bipartisan Bicameral Civic Secures Democracy Act that would authorize $1 billion annually for these purposes, and the more modest Bipartisan Teaching Engaged Citizenship Act, which is $400 million annually, which those were filed in September 2021 in the House. 
So can you imagine what that money could do when it comes to expanding the next generation's understanding of how our own country works? Right. And so remember that whole long bill process, we talked about how the bill becomes law. It should be noted that both of these bills have been introduced, but have not yet moved forward when I check their status. Okay. Okay. So, you know, we love the practical. Come on, McCarthy, get on it. (laughs) I know, right? We all know how a bill becomes a law now. So- what can you do with what you've just learned with your newfound civic knowledge? Well, we're going to learn more and also get involved more because we know what our rights are and the power in our voices. So what you can do immediately is speak up, join community groups, and keep tabs on what civics your kids are being taught. You know, we'll be back with more on civics shortly as well. And if you found this episode helpful and, you know, speaking for myself, I know I did because this was a huge refresher and also some additional new info for me. Please go ahead and share this with all your friends because we're still going to be saying this in 2023. It's all of us or none of us. And that's definitely the case when it comes to our democracy. You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to DearWhiteWomen.com to get on the list. <laughs>